I'm Kefa Butterfield at the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Welcome back to this week's episode of In AI We Trust. We are so fortunate to have a guest co-host this week, Karen Temple, Senior Executive Vice President and Global General Counsel for the Motion Picture Association. Karen is one of the world's leading authorities on copyright and oversees the association's legal affairs and content protection efforts around the world. Prior to joining the Motion Picture Association, she has served almost 10 years at the U.S. Copyright Office as the Register and Director of Copyrights. She has been at the Department of Justice she has been an associate at top firms in DC, a very good friend, a board member at Equal AI almost since we started and is joining us in our personal capacity today. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here today, Miriam. As you mentioned, I am speaking today only in my personal capacity as a copyright legal nerd and someone who's really interested in the intersection of copyright law and AI and not on behalf of any of my members or my organization. And I look forward to really having a robust conversation with our guest today. I do as well. But before we get to that and explain to everyone why your copyright background and expertise is so relevant, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Well, I will say I've been reading the 10,000 plus comments that came into the United States Copyright Office in response to their notice of inquiry on copyright in AI. So just about a week ago, the initial comment period closed for the public to provide input to the United States Copyright Office as it looks at various issues related to copyright and AI. They issued a public notice asking about 34 different questions to answer all the way from topics related to just copyright, AI and registration, copyrightability infringement. And so a number of organizations and individuals, creators provided comments. And so it's just been very interesting getting to read some of those comments and the variety of diverse opinions as to how copyright law and AI operate currently. Absolutely. Well, certainly an interesting time in copyright law and AI. In non-copyright news, I was really energized today by our National AI Advisory Committee meeting. We had our public meeting that was two hours today. I thought it would be too long. It turns out we did not have enough time to cover all that we wanted to discuss. All of our working groups have been working really hard to continue to produce relevant findings and recommendations. So you can find our hearing online as well as some of the documents that we voted on today on ai.gov backslash NIAC, but really proud of some of the important work that my fellow members have been working on and, and producing that are so timely and so important to make sure that rights are being protected, to make sure that safety is under consideration, and to make sure that we take our job to the fullest extent possible in advising the president in the White House on AI policy at this really interesting, exciting time. I also had a really interesting experience last week going to Bentonville, Arkansas for the Heartland Forward Conference. I did not know much about Bentonville, Arkansas before I went, and I have to say I come back a fan. It's really nice when you go to a conference and 
First of all, everything is walkable. They've intentionally created a town where you can be healthy while you're in a conference or, or living there. So it's all bikeable and walkable. An amazing museum. We saw an Annie Leibovitz exhibit that really blew me away, as well as the fantastic speakers they brought in. I very much enjoyed a panel on responsible AI, but very much enjoyed hearing fellow panelists throughout the day and a half from Matthew McConaughey talking about his perspective on, on democracy to all the innovators across the heartland who are doing really important work to make sure that those in the heartland are participating in our AI economy. So really important work and energizing. But speaking of important work and energizing, I'm so excited to talk with you, Karen, today and our guest, Amanda Lewandowski, who's at Georgetown Law School, a copyright expert, who's done some really cutting edge work and is going to educate us and our listeners today about what she's thinking about with AI and copyright. Today, we are so pleased to be joined by Amanda Lewandowski, the founding director of the Intellectual Property and Information Policy Clinic, IPIP, and an associate professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Amanda's scholarship explores novel legal strategies to promote social justice through intellectual property and cyber law. Much of her work uses intellectual property law to counter technological threats, including non-consensual intimate imagery, artificial intelligence bias, secretive surveillance technologies, invasive face surveillance, and opaque dystopian technologies. Amanda is a faculty advisor to the Tech Law and Policy Institute and the Disability Law Students Association, and she was nominated to the Office of Disability Services Faculty Advisory Board. She's also founder of Cyberspace and Technology Lab, CAT. Before joining Georgetown, she taught at NYU Tech Law and Policy Clinic, and prior to that, served as an associate in law offices in New York. Amanda, thank you so much for joining today. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start off learning more about you and this unique interest you had early on about the intersection of AI and law. Where did this interest get sparked initially? It actually started with something that had, I thought at the time, nothing to do with artificial intelligence. It started with an interest at the intersection of privacy and copyright. And when I was a law student, I was really disturbed by the rise in non-consensual intimate imagery, which many people used to refer to as revenge porn. And when I started researching it, I realized that there was no Wikipedia article about it. And so I reached out to one of my professors and I said, I want to write about copyright and non-consensual intimate imagery for your class, but I also really want to create the Wikipedia article for revenge porn because it's wild to me that it doesn't exist yet. What do you think? And his name is Chris Sprigman. He's at NYU Law. He was a gem. And he said, do whatever you want. I'll sign off on it. It's probably fine. And so I created the Wikipedia article in parallel with writing this really long article exploring how victims of non-consensual intimate imagery could use copyright law creatively for social justice, specifically using the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to request the removal of their explicit selfies. Not only is that method now being used, it was used when Reddit posted the nude images of a number of celebrities, including Jennifer Lawrence in 2014. Copyright law has been used in litigation to get hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages awarded for copyright infringement. But it was the first thing that really got me thinking that privacy and copyright are so intimately tied together with social justice. And so when I started taking notice of AI in 2015, that was where my mind first went was, what does it mean to be using other people's data to create 
new works, new in quotes. And what does it mean when those new works are biased and harmful? What is the intersection of those two areas of law once again? As you described, it looks like you've been thinking about the intersection of copyright law and AI for a while. And I know that you wrote an article in 2018 entitled How Copyright Law Can Fix Artificial Intelligence Implicit Bias Problem, which is really an interesting topic. I know that sometimes people want to caution against the use of copyright law for things other than traditional kind of copyright issues. And so this is a unique way to approach copyright law. Can you give us the elevator pitch, so to speak, on how how you think copyright can actually potentially reduce AI-related bias? Sure. The TLDR is we might need fair use for fair artificial intelligence. And the way this plays out is you think about the data that isn't copyrighted data. Where can you get massive quantities of creative works that you can train your algorithm on so that it can create outputs that are useful to other people? Well, if you're not using copyrighted works, you could build a giant system that acquires those works, something like what Meta has done with Facebook, right? They're constantly hoovering up selfies and status updates that they could be using to refine natural language processing algorithms or previously face recognition algorithms. But it's pretty expensive to build a massive system and attract the number of users you need and the diversity of users you need to actually have a representative sample of those selfies and status updates. So the build it model is for the privileged few. The other model is the buy it model, which is kind of what IBM has done in front of its medical partnerships, right? They're not doctors, they're not getting patient data that's been anonymized and scrubbed, but they can buy that data from partner organizations like Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital. And if you can guess, that's very valuable data, which is also very expensive. So again, we're limited to the privileged few. So if you don't have the resources to build it or buy it, what can you do? Well, you could use the public domain. Public domain cuts off in the late 1920s, which was uh, not historically an awesome time for women, queer people, and people of color. So you could have a system that's run entirely on the public domain, which is beautiful in some ways, but potentially really harmful if you're trying to ask natural language processing algorithm, hey, I think I might be queer. What do you think about that? Or what do you think about Black Lives Matter? it's not gonna be able to articulate an answer for you that's effective and efficient. You could use some public data sets like the Enron emails, but we should probably question, even though those are a very popular training data set historically, why we have the Enron emails. It's because a bunch of guys in Houston did fraud. And if you think there aren't biases embedded in the emails of a bunch of guys from an oil and gas company that collapsed under federal investigation, you would be right. The historical research shows that there are both gender biases and power biases embedded in that data, which would be replicated in any algorithm. And then the final option is Creative Commons license data, like Wikipedia. Catherine Mayer, the former executive director of Wikimedia Foundation, said that Wikipedia was one of the leading training data sets for facts. You might think that facts can't really be biased, but Wikipedia is generated by a bunch of volunteer editors around the globe, and you might find that those facts are pretty biased. The article about Taylor Swift is many, many footnotes long. And while she absolutely deserves that attention, the woman who is the first woman admitted to the New York State Bar doesn't even have an article. And you can see the asymmetry between pop stars and groundbreaking political women just in how they're cited on Wikipedia and how they're discussed on Wikipedia. So that's why we look to the borrow it model, which is what's being done by AI companies across the board, which is using copyrighted works because the alternatives are very expensive, very biased, and sometimes both. 
And I would be remiss if I didn't kind of push back a little bit in terms of the borrowing model, because unfortunately what often happens with the borrowing model is that it's borrowed on the back of the creators. And so the creators who are who we want to support, sometimes those minority creators, you know, queer creators, they aren't getting compensated for their works. And so how, when you're thinking about how to, on the one hand, reduce bias by potentially making sure that the data set has as much diversity as possible, but on the other hand, the fact that those diverse creators wouldn't be compensated if if their works are used under a fair use model without a license, how do you balance those kind of competing interests? It's not really how I balance them. It's how copyright law has decided to balance them, right? I think a lot of the authors in these AI lawsuits are seeking consent, compensation, and credit. Well, we don't really have moral rights in America outside of a limited context of the Digital Money and Copyright Act. So the credit piece may not be something they can get really satisfying answers to in federal court, which leaves behind the consent and compensation piece. But fair use says that it's okay to use copyrighted works without consent or compensation in specific statutory circumstances. And in this piece, I really do a deep dive into the four factors of fair use that are codified at 17 USC section 107. Shout out to Barbara Ringer, the lead architect of the Copyright Act, whose 50th anniversary of being appointed is coming up this week. And shout out to, to Barbara Ringer. Barbara Ringer. And Fair use says, yes, we really care about consent some of the time, but for certain uses, you should be allowed to use works without consent. And I think what the bigger problem is, is helping artists and authors understand where fair use can fit into this landscape in a positive way. Because I think right now it's being wielded by these companies in a way that feels very much like an attack, right? It feels like it's an attack on creators. But if they potentially had an understanding of the alternative, right, if their works aren't being used, what does AI look like when it's riddled with these biases, when we do have creators opting out and we're only left with the people who can afford to stay in the system, that might maybe change some perspectives. I don't think it's going to change the outcome of these lawsuits. I don't think it's going to change that these lawsuits are happening, but it might provide some additional context that's, I think, missing sometimes from the conversation. So that was very interesting. In your article, you really spent a lot of time assessing all of the four fair use factors and really determining whether each fair use factor weighed in favor of a finding of fair use or not in a finding of fair use. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that and whether you think that fair use itself lends itself to a bright line rule with respect to copyright and AI or not. I think it's got to be done on a case-by-case basis. And the reason is because when I was writing that article, I started working on it in 2016, 2017. I kept thinking, I was like, there must be, there must be an exception to how this works. I'm not, I'm not seeing some really obvious ones. I'm not seeing ones that are slam dunks when I'm doing my research and looking at some of the algorithms that I was potentially thinking about as test cases. But I was like, there must be something out there that I would look at and say, this doesn't really fit with what fair use is trying to do And it's not really consistent, particularly under that factor one. It's not really transformative, which is, you know, post Judge Pierre Laval's article from the 90s, really the touchstone of that first factor. And I found one and it was face surveillance. And what was surprising to me is that when companies like Clearview AI copy your profile picture, it's for the exact same purpose as a profile picture. It's to link an online image with an offline identity. I call this in the paper particularized identification. 
Well, particularized identification isn't transformative. And a lot of the empirical research that looks at fair use factors in relation to one another suggests that if you're not transformative, you're going to have a really hard time triumphing in court on the other fair use factors. I don't want to say it's a dispositive factor because it's not all the factors are relevant, but factors one and four are some of the most relevant factors and not being transformative is not a requirement of the statute. And yet in courts, it seems to be one of the most important things that they look at. And so in resisting face surveillance with copyright law, I do a deep dive. I spend a lot of time analyzing all four factors of fair use yet again. Um, so if you really want to get both sides of the issue, these are the two pieces to read. And I think that in that particular context, unfortunately, I wasn't able to come to the conclusion that all face recognition is not fair use because I don't think that bears out with how the factors work. But with profile pictures, that can poison the well. That's very fascinating. And I would say interesting because I think people want a bright line rule. And so there are a lot of, you know, people right now who want to say it's automatically fair use or it's automatically infringement. And so knowing that the best way to go about it might be to just have an individual assessment of the factors and the particular issue that you're confronting is very interesting perspective. Well, and, and so helpful also for those who are less familiar with copyright law to hear your helpful description of, of what it means, how it applies in the AI context based on your research. Appreciate your talking us through a little bit on the, how it applies to facial surveillance laws based on your article. I'm curious, does generative AI change your past findings at all? Do you think it will? I'm also curious, you have found this important tool of copyright law in handling unwanted facial surveillance and, and other unwanted developments. Do you think that's the best approach? Is copyright law the way we should be handling this? Or, or are you hoping we'll find other remedies under legal regimes going forward? I would love to stop writing about AI and copyright. I think that would be delightful. I'm writing a piece about AI and copyright right now. So we've actually had cases about AI and fair use in the past. We just didn't think of those technologies as artificial intelligence. The two examples that I give in the paper are search engines, right? We had Kelly versus ArebaSoft, and we had Perfect 10 versus Amazon, which was about Google image search. And in both cases, those were declared public benefits by the court, and they were found to be fair use. In the other context is Turnitin.com's plagiarism detection software, which was also based on artificial intelligence currently in use, now currently being used to identify secondary works by students that are allegedly generated by AI. And that was also declared a public benefit. But what's so strange about declaring these technologies public benefits is the court kind of does it in both cases, the Fourth Circuit and Ninth Circuit, in a very cursory way. These are public benefits. They serve the public interest. Moving on to the next thing. They're done kind of as factors of either factor one or factor four. It's not really clear what the definition of public benefit is. It's not like a public benefit to whom. There are a lot of open questions that are not answered by these courts' opinions. And the biggest one is what about the public harm? Google image search has done tremendous damage to people of color and women by pr producing stereotypical sexist, racist results. And Sophia Noble's incredible work in algorithms of oppression identified this issue, I think, almost a decade ago, if not more than a decade ago, talking about when she ran searches for the search Black girls, she received intersectionally biased results that produced pornography for Black girls and little girls playing for white girls. And at no point does the court grapple with the fact that an algorithmized research system like Google Image Search can produce pretty significant socio-technical harms. 
And the same thing plays out with Turnitin. It may seem amazing to have the efficiency of detecting plagiarism, but really it's just pattern recognition. And when Turnitin gets it wrong, think about how strict the academic standards are around plagiarism today. It's not just a zero on an assignment. It's not just failing a class. It could be suspension, expulsion, and other arms that can be produced by that false result. And in particular, that's happening in the context of Turnitin's new tool to identify AI-generated text in student work. And it's disproportionately flagging the work of non-native English speakers who are already at so many other disadvantages academically in the U.S. system. And what was really shocking to me when I started diving into this scholarship was, well, what if we did account for those public harms? What, what, what if? What if we actually addressed the public benefit in light of those public harms? And so I've actually devised a method called the fairer use method, F-A-I-R-R, to formalize, assess, identify, reconsider, and report how this plays out in a client-centered lawyering context for clients. Because clients should be prepared to reconsider the social, political, moral, and economic harms of their technologies. And under Rule 2.1, we're empowered as lawyers to advise on those issues. And so when we're advising on those issues, we should be using the fairer use method to formalize what a technology is actually being used for on the ground concretely in practice. We should be assessing the public benefits using qualitative methods that draw from the full body of almost 50 cases to figure out what exactly the public benefit is. Is it expressive? Is it enjoyment? Is it efficiency? Is it an emergent sort of combination of those things? Um, we should also be identifying the public harms, whether it's discrimination, displacement, destruction, another D word, we're still working on the paper. And then we should be reconsidering those public benefits in light of those public harms and reporting those out to the client. And I think that while the public benefit factor is not gonna overcome factor one and factor four as the most relevant factor, I think that we do a real disservice to the people who are harmed by these technologies by dubbing them public benefits without even acknowledging that maybe they're not all good. And that's actually really interesting because it's kind of adding an additional part of analysis to the first fair use factor. You know, as we talked a little bit earlier, people really do want a bright line rule, but it, it, it doesn't sound like there's a way to have one without really going through all of the, the, the factors one by one and even thinking about the factors in a, in a different way as you propose. I mean, how would you try to advise your clients in terms of if they wanted to develop a system that didn't infringe on someone's copyrights? How would you advise them? Or, you know, is it looking at it through a different prism? Is it looking at, as you said, both the benefits and the harms? You know, what is the best way you would say that these systems can be developed without infringing intellectual property rights? I mean, again, if you use the build it or buy it model, you can develop these systems without infringing on copyrights. It just means that the competition is going to be pretty limited to the privileged few. And maybe we decide that that's what we need for our AI systems, that only, you know, a handful of companies can actually build AI because they're the only ones that can build it or buy it. Or we're going to have bias in those systems because the ones that kind of are the scrappy upstarts are going to rely on what I call in the paper biased low friction data, things like the public domain, creative commons. I love creative commons, but maybe not just exclusively for this purpose and free works that other people release under other licenses. And so I think one of the things to think about is what do we tell our clients about these trade-offs? And I think a client-centered approach is really the best method. That's what we teach in the clinic. That's what many clinics around the country teach. And what we're saying in a client-centered approach is 
I'm not telling you what to do. I'm actually not giving you advice. I'm counseling you about all the possible options and the potential consequences of those options. And I think when you pair that with rule 2.1, when you are able to advise on not just legal, but socio-technical issues as well, you really have a powerhouse of options. And I believe in that so strongly that I'm actually writing a book about that method. I'm writing a book called Full Slate, How Lawyers Can Shape Better Technologies. We have another acronym. Slate is actually a mnemonic for sustainability, labor, accountability, transparency, and ethics. And I say that those are the five sort of socio-technical layers that lawyers need to be able to advise in as well as the law. And so when someone from a big tech company comes to you and says, hey, we're building this natural language processing algorithm, it's going to be you know, the next flavor of generative AI. What do you think? You shouldn't just be saying, are you using copyrighted data? You should say, hey, where are you building the data center for that? Is it in the deserts of Mesa, Arizona, which is where I grew up and which has been in a drought for longer than I've been alive? That's something that you should be empowered to ask. And it doesn't take any billable hours to bring up that question. And so the book is really to help prepare junior lawyers, both in-house and at big law firms, as well as public interest organizations that want to counter these arguments and think about them strategically in order to push these companies to be better to ask the right questions. So I know that they're not going to be able to spend all the billable hours that I'm going to spend writing this book, researching it, but they can look to the back of the chapter and ask five questions and get to a better answer with their clients in a more client-centered way. Amanda, I love how you're not only giving such a clear breakdown of the law as it stands, but also such practical guidance and, and such important framing to some extent to help reframe, to some extent you could argue to appropriately frame how we should be thinking about our role as lawyers, our role as AI users. So thank you so much for these really helpful illustrations. I'm mindful of a story in the Times last weekend, building on what you're talking about with the biased Google searches and cases that have been decided where we're seeing with generative AI, the searches are continuing to demonstrate this bias. And so on the one hand, we're saying, well, what may be a solution is leaving it in the hands of those who are privileged to afford the data. But on the other, it doesn't look like that's necessarily getting us better outcomes where these biased images continue to perpetuate even through generative AI models, which are theoretically building on so much more data and, and so many more inputs. But I know that courts have started to speak more frequently on this, as well as the Copyright Office. Last August, Judge Howell wrote that copyright has never been granted to a work that was absent any guiding human hand. So we're clear on where the courts are starting to articulate their stance on this, which is consistent with what the U.S. copyright has said on AI-generated art, where copyright cannot be granted on the grounds that human authorship is a bedrock requirement of copyright law. So there are some points of clarity, many more points that remain to be answered. So I'm curious what you expect to see in the courts in terms of really novel and important questions that will be coming up for judges in common law to be answering for us. What do you think are some of the limits that we're going to reach with the law as it stands? What would you like to see the role of the Copyright Office be in, in helping answer some of these questions? It's such a good question. And I think one of the ways that I come to my response is to think backwards about what I want to be done with AI-generated works. They could be the biggest public domain that we currently have. And I think that that's really powerful. 
They are problematic images sometimes. They are biased images, but they're no less problematic or biased than human-generated works. Indeed, that it actually shows that they're really good at replicating human work because they reflect and amplify our same biases. But if they were used strategically, they could be used to create an enormous public domain that didn't cut off in the 1920s that actually extended into the present. And I was really pleased to supervise one of my former students, Dylan Brown Bramble, who's currently a practicing lawyer, write a piece about the expanding public domain and why AI-generated work should be declined to extend copyright protection because it could create a more robust public domain. Whether we want to use those works is a different question that I think is really up to the people who are deciding when and how to use those works and for what purposes. But there's something very appealing about having more than just the 1920s that only flips over every calendar year. Um, I think in that context, we have a place for the U.S. Copyright Office, and they've been really clear. We are not going to generate copyrights for AI-generated works. I think what's going to happen in the courts is people are going to try to divvy that up more and more finely. Well, I did this. Is that more human-generated? Did I do this? Is this more human-generated? And I think it's going to be a chiseling effect. And I'm curious to see where courts come down and whether the Copyright Office makes a difference because a court can say that it's copyrightable, but I don't think that if the Copyright Office changes its rules, if you can't register your copyright, you can never enforce it. So I think it creates an interesting tension between how that would play out between courts and the Copyright Office standing instead. Yes, I would just you know add, I think that it's going to be very interesting. I think the general requirement of copyright law that it, you know, it only applies to human authors. Everyone agrees, but you're right. The question will be what amount of human authorship is required to make something copyrightable. We're used to tools being used in creation of art, whether it's Adobe Photoshop or something else. And so, you know, how many props are people utilizing in a a various work to create a work? Is that going to be a factor? How they use those props? So it's going to be very interesting. And I know that the Copyright Office has received almost 10,000 comments in their current inquiry about some of AI and copyright. So we'll, we'll see how it ultimately comes out. And I know that you talked about a a little bit earlier some of your students and some of the things that they're doing to potentially advise clients through the Intellectual Property and Information Policy Clinic, IPIP, I think it's called for short, and you're the founding director, I believe. Can you just tell us a little bit more about IPIP and what the focus is? Of course. The Intellectual Property and Information Policy Clinic, or IPIP, as it's known, exactly right. We provide counseling to justice-minded artists nonprofits, and coalitions whose mission aligns with social justice. And that takes a lot of different forms. Sometimes it is what you would think advising an individual artist on intellectual property issues raised by their art. But sometimes it's advising putting my student note into action and advising domestic violence coalitions on how to get their clients nude images removed from the internet after an abuser posts them in retaliation for leaving, escaping, or reporting them. And then there's a lot of stuff in between. We do work for libraries. We do work for archives. We do work for abolitionist orgs. We do work for open knowledge organizations. We do work for some organizations you've heard of, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union. And then also a bunch that you've never heard of that are smaller, local, or more concentrated organizations that really wouldn't be able to do this work without our help. And that's really what we're looking for from somebody who comes to us asking for help is, could you do this work without us? And if the answer is no, they're probably going to be a really good fit for the clinic. And I think that you talked already about some of the general skills that will be necessary as students 
consider AI and their own use of AI? I mean, do you see students approaching this in a different way than how they might approach other areas of the law? Is there something unique about AI or or specific skills that you think that a student needs to have in order to really be able to assess, analyze, and evaluate their use of AI and the use of AI by others? Well, I'm really lucky to be at Georgetown where we have a couple of programs that teach students how AI actually works so that they can have that 1.1 competency to actually make informed decisions. Because I think one of the challenges with AI is a lot of students just don't understand it. A lot of faculty just don't understand it. They just know that it's a technology that's out there and it seems really big and vast and overwhelming. But my colleague, Paul Ohm, teaches a law and AI class, I think, to like 70 students, which is pretty sizable. My colleague, Danny Wolf Townsend, I think teaches an AI upper division seminar to even more students. We have a number of colleagues who work as adjuncts who also teach our students sort of specific issues of artificial intelligence in practice. They bring their vast practical experience into the classroom and illuminate the issues that way. I think the clinicians are increasingly thinking about this from a skills perspective. I know that our legal practice faculty who teach 1Ls are definitely thinking about this issue. But I think what we're all missing out on is no one is taking that big first step. There have been a number of like law review articles that kind of talk about this issue. What do we think it's going to do for the next gen bar exam? What do we think it's going to do for training lawyers to do research? But there hasn't been something about the ethical competencies yet. And that's really where I see a lot of the potential value coming. Because if you don't have that 1.1 competency, you really there's really nothing to talk about right? There's really no conversation. You shouldn't be using AI if you don't understand it. But how do you understand it? Can someone help you? Do you want to? Is it good for your client? Those are some of the bigger questions that I hope we'll we'll get to answer over the next couple of years. And I hope that I'm not the only clinic doing this work. And I'm sure I won't be. Yeah, such a good point. It's not just, are you using AI, but your client is, and they might not even realize it. So I would argue it's our duty as part of our competency to make sure that we know to advise them on how they may be using it, some of the liabilities that that they could be creating, some of the harms. So very great. Like a client-centered lawyer, yes. (laughs) So agreed. Thank goodness Georgetown is taking this on in such a thoughtful way. And I'm so sorry this conversation is coming to a close. I've learned so much and I've so enjoyed it, but being respectful of your time, I know we have to do that. And I wanted to ask you the final question we ask all of our guests, and that is, if you had a magic wand for one wish to help us achieve responsible AI, what would that wish be? Hmm. I know you told me this was coming and I thought about it and then I like got overwhelmed. <laughs> Sometimes the answer is not AI. And I wish that companies and lawyers and engineers and artists and authors and other creators weren't so afraid to say, you know what? AI is not the solution. We don't have to slap a bird on this. We can do something else. And I would love to see the creativity of what other people present as those alternatives. Thank you, Amanda, for this really enlightening conversation and for the important work you're doing. Thanks for having me. This was a real blast. It was so fun to speak to both of you. And I really appreciate this opportunity to share what we're doing in the IPID clinic, because I think the students are doing awesome, awesome stuff. Definitely. Thank you. Thanks so much. So Karen, as we thought, Amanda has been giving such deep thought to the intersection between copyright and AI, how it's playing out, how she would like it to play out, where we can benefit from additional guidance and thought as lawyers, uh, what the policymaker role is, what the judges should be thinking about. What were some of the big takeaways for you? 
I would say one of the things that I really found fascinating in her discussion was her approach to analyzing copyright, fair use, and AI, and really wanting to go one by one through all of the fair use factors. A lot of times what you're seeing in the discussions of copyright and AI right now are people picking a side, you know, either they're on the side of tech and they think that every use of copyrighted works to train a system automatically is fair use, or they're on the side of creators and they say every use of copyrighted works to train a system without compensation and permission is an infringement. So there aren't really bright line rules that you really do have to go through the fair use factors and maybe even consider other aspects among the fair use factors that you might not have considered before, like the social justice aspect of copyright as you're determining whether a specific use is a fair use. So I thought that was very interesting and a little bit different than where a lot of people are coming out right now and a little bit more thoughtful. Yeah, I was really impressed with the balanced approach, how practical she was, as well as being deeply thoughtful. It's so interesting to think about the way that copyright law is being used to protect such a wide range of different interests and people from revenge porn to biased and discriminatory images that we find on searches. You know, they're, they're just the whole span of ways that, that we've found this perhaps unusual remedy to address these really important, timely questions. I also took note, I appreciated that she lives her truth, that when she was talking about different ideas, she was making sure to cite whose idea it was and giving credit where due. So I appreciate that she was practicing what she preaches. And I'm very grateful as a Georgetown Law alum that she's making sure that the students are AI ready to make sure that they are being very thoughtful about their competency duty under Rule 1.1, the confidentiality 1.6, you know, are just two of the many ways that lawyers of the future, lawyers today, the future is here, really need to be mindful not only of their AI use personally and through their organization, but their clients are using it and they really need to be mindful of how they need to be an effective lawyer in the AI world that we're now living in. Well, Karen, thank goodness you were available to join us today and have your copyright expertise on this really engaging, thoughtful conversation with Amanda. Wonderful being here. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible. 